I just want to remind you that my ambition for carrying out this study this spring is because I desire for us to be a church that is biblically informed, spiritually engaged, and victoriously minded when it comes to spiritual warfare. And we are engaged in spiritual warfare as believers in Christ. And we should therefore be biblically informed. And being biblically informed ought to cause us to be very spiritually engaged. And our engagement spiritually every single day ought to be from a standpoint of being victorious because of Christ. I want to read a passage of Scripture to you. We're not going to focus there, but I just want to springboard out of this passage. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. It says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. I so long for us to be a body of believers who are not regularly entangled in the affairs of this life so that we are actively serving our commander. And tonight I want to talk about how we can do that in spiritual warfare. Now, spiritual warfare is something we didn't know about, and we need certainty about spiritual warfare and what spiritual warfare really is. When I talk about spiritual warfare, I'm talking about things like overcoming sin in your life, um, battling the spiritual forces that stand against us and against the proclamation of the gospel. People being influenced by demons and Satan's powers, demon possession, people having sicknesses because of evil, immorality, um, sinfulness that is abounding and just propagating throughout our culture, pornography. Um, I mean, you just go through the list of dark things that, that are happening around us and affecting us, and we're right in the middle of all of that because we are living in a spiritual realm. And because of that, we must be certain about spiritual warfare. Now, the only way to be certain about spiritual warfare is to make sure that God's Word is informing us regarding spiritual warfare. There is no other place you can get good information about spiritual warfare than Scripture. Scripture is the only place you can get certain information, information that is certain about what spiritual warfare is and how to accomplish effective spiritual warfare in your life. You can't get it any other place than Scripture because Scripture is the place that God has revealed what He wants us to know about Him and what He wants us to know about how to live this life engaged spiritually. This is the only place you can get it. And so we must be careful to make sure that we're defining and understanding and pursuing a life of spiritual warfare as it has been described and defined within the parameters of Scripture. This is what God has determined that He wants us to know, and what He wants us to know about spiritual warfare is contained within these pages. So we must be very careful not to 
give more credence or credibility to things about spiritual warfare that are not found within the parameters of Scripture. There is a tendency to give credence to things that sound really good or that seem like they'd be the next best answer to get your, uh, your victory that is rather elusive because of some situation in your life. It, it sounds like it could be the next greatest opportunity for strategy against the enemy. It, it sounds new and uh, powerful, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, you are buying into things about spiritual warfare that are not certainly described in Scripture. And we should make sure that we are allowing the certain things of Scripture to dictate what we understand about spiritual warfare. It's imperative that we understand what God has said about spiritual warfare because spiritual warfare is synonymous with our everyday lives. And He has not left us without clear direction so that we might certainly know how to live in the midst of this spiritual realm. I want to remind you that we have an enemy who wants us to be deceived. The enemy wants to tempt us to believe things that are not true but have just enough truth about them so that we would buy into them as something truthful. The enemy is a tempter and a liar and a deceiver, and he wants to deceive us. So we must be very cautious about making sure that we are understanding spiritual warfare from within the confines of God's Word. I want to give you a few examples of what the enemy does to give us just enough truth to deceive in the realm of spiritual warfare. Example number one, generational curses. Some of you may have heard these examples, some of you may not, so I'm just going to give a quick summary. Generational curses is the belief that because of somebody's sin in your family line ahead of you, You now bear a curse on your life because of past sin. And that curse is a controlling curse that leads you to carry out that same sin. And that curse needs to be broken. And there are certain steps that you need to take to break that curse. And until those steps are taken to break that curse, that generational curse will basically control your life. Now, there's enough in Scripture about things that pass down from generations having to do with sin that generational curses sound somewhat truthful, but it's just enough truth to deceive. There is nothing in Scripture to base an idea of curses transferring from generation to generation that have to be dealt with in any other way except through the blood of Christ applied through salvation. There is no scripture verse that talks about curses transferring by generations just because someone else made a mistake in the past. And so, again, just enough truth to deceive. Uh, Example number two, territorial spirits. I don't know if you've heard about this movement, but there's this movement, a strategy 
that is, has been developed to go into an area and identify in that area a spirit that is a demon that is in control of a geographical location. And you have to identify the spirit that's in control of that geographical location. You need to know that spirit's name, and then you begin to pray against that spirit's work. In conjunction with that, you identify the sins of that geographical location that are there because of that controlling spirit. Then you have to repent of those sins on the basis for everyone in that location. And so you're repenting for all the people in that location and the sins they've done under the control of that demonic force. And then after you've done that, you've lifted the curse that comes on that location by the sin that's, that's pushed by the um, demonic spirit. And at that point, then you can go in and share the gospel and you will see fruitful return. Now, there's enough truth in those descriptions to deceive. But there is no biblical foundation to merit that strategy as effective spiritual warfare. It's not in the scripture. Example number three. Binding Satan from a location. So let's say that tonight I wanted to do spiritual warfare in preparation for the service. I came in here and I said, Satan and all your demons... I bind you from this building so that this building might be free from Satan and his demons and the Spirit of God might be able to move in all of our lives. Now, that sounds like it's truthful enough to be real and good spiritual warfare, but in reality, there is no directive in Scripture that tells me that I can or even should Try to bind Satan from a building, from a location. There is no biblical warrant for that activity whatsoever. All right, number four. Faith as a power. There is a strategy in spiritual warfare that encourages you to believe that if you have faith, you can do certain things, claim certain things, name certain things, cause certain things to occur. Those things will happen simply because you believe it. And so what you're in essence doing is you are commanding God to do what you think God should do because you have enough faith to tell him what to do. And uh, that certainly sounds favorable I mean, that would be really powerful, but that is not at all what the Scripture teaches. When you look at these things that can be just enough truth to deceive, you're going to see a common thread through all of these spiritual warfare strategy. And the common thread is a desire for a quick fix to make life easier. And you can read this book. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, we are not promised an easier life. The goal of spiritual warfare is not the comfort of my life. And any strategy 
that promises you a quick fix out of the difficulty of living in the struggle of this world is short-circuiting the book of God and misleading you to what spiritual warfare really is. Our enemy is real. And he wants to mislead us. But our enemy, our greatest enemy, is really not Satan. I mean, think about Satan is a defeated foe. He's not the equal and opposite force against God. He's completely defeated. He's working with permission. God has given him permission to do all that he does. He has limited authority that's been given to him by God. He is already defeated by the cross. Our greatest enemy is not Satan. Think about Satan. He he actually is used by the Lord to accomplish the Lord's ultimate purposes. There are times when Satan's doing things that God uses to bring about his purposes. There's no way that Satan is our greatest enemy. The scripture says that if we stand in faith, we can overcome through the victory of Christ, our enemy Satan, this world that stands against us, and our own flesh that we battle with. See, our greatest enemy is not Satan. Our greatest enemy is our own unbelief. It's our own unbelief. I mean, take Adam and Eve, for example. And then they're a garden, and uh, Satan comes to tempt them. He could have tempted them all day long with all the greatest temptations of the world. If they never believe what Satan is saying, and they continue to believe what God has said, Satan offers no threat to them whatsoever. See, Satan has no authority to go in there and wipe out Adam and Eve. He has no opportunity to go in there and and, uh, issue forth all this power to just control the whole situation. He has one limited freedom to offer temptation for them to stop believing what God said and start believing what Satan said. And their greatest enemy, their problems really began when they started believing what Satan said and stopped believing what God said. Our greatest enemy is really unbelief, which means our greatest asset is our faith in Jesus Christ. See, faith in Jesus Christ is is our greatest asset. And I want to dig into, just for a few minutes, the certainty of Scripture so that Scripture can guide us in understanding what it is to be engaged in spiritual warfare. And I want to look at Ephesians chapter 6. And the reason I want to look at Ephesians chapter 6 is because Ephesians chapter 6 is the most definitive and exhaustive statement in all of Scripture regarding spiritual warfare. You will not find a more definitive or more exhaustive description of what it means to be engaged effectively in spiritual warfare than you'll find in Ephesians chapter 6. There's a good reason for that. Um, In Paul's day, Ephesus was an incredibly dark place. Um, This was the center, the hub 
of, of incredible works and efforts in magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. This was a dark, dark place. You remember the story about the seven sons of Sceva? They try to cast out a demon, but they don't know Jesus Christ. And so they're trying to, to mix with uh, the dark, uh, uh, you know, forces. And uh, so this one guy who's possessed by a demon takes these seven dudes and beats them to a pulp. And they run away completely stripped of all their clothes and beat up. Now, that's a bad situation right there. I mean, this is a dark place. When people were coming to faith because of Paul's preaching the truth, um, they, they were willing to confess their practices in evil, demonic idolatry. And they brought forth, now this is just the people who were believing in Ephesus. This, isn't, this is not the whole city. This is just the people who are believing in Christ. They brought forth all of their books and materials that told them how to perform their magic and demonic idolatry. And they were going to burn them. And they, they kind of evaluated how much stuff did we bring forward in this. And the scripture says in Acts chapter 19 that they brought forward 50,000 days wages worth of stuff. That's 136 years of work. In today's currency, that'd be over $3 million at around minimum wage. Now, that's a lot of dark stuff. That's a lot of satanic stuff going on in Ephesus. I mean, this Ephesus is the hub of darkness and spiritual warfare. And so when Paul writes the Ephesian believers... In chapter 6, he gives them a definitive and exhaustive treatment of how to do spiritual warfare because of where they live. And I can tell you right now that none of us live in a place as dark as Ephesus. Abilene is not any darker than Ephesus. And the directives that we have in Scripture in Ephesians chapter 6 regarding spiritual warfare are more than adequate for certainly carrying out faithfulness to the Lord in engaging in spiritual warfare. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, and let's start reading in verse 10, and we're going to focus in on verses 14 and 15. And notice the repetition as I read through this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's as far as we're going to work tonight. All right, I hope you notice the repetition of standing firm. And the picture here is that we are to exercise faith in Christ through putting on the armor of God. That our faith in Christ is being described here through the imagery of armor. 
and that we are to outfit ourselves in this spiritual armor as a way of exercising our faith so that we are standing firm in faith against the attack and the efforts of the enemy so that when resisting the enemy, he flees from us. He has no power against us. And so I just want to walk through these first three pieces of the armor. The first one is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Now, this is not the word of God. We'll get to that later. The belt of truth is seeing who God is and what God has said as the defining element of reality. See, God defines reality. What God says and who God is defines what is. It's not how I feel about things. It's not what I want things to be. The way things are is what God says because of who God is. And so I line my life up with the reality that God is defined by his person, his character, and his word. So that my life is congruent with who he is. When my life lines up, when my reality is in submission to what God says is reality, I have put on the belt of truth. Think about it like this. Somebody does something to you that is very, very hurtful. I mean, it, it, it really, really hurts you. And so all of a sudden, your reality contains an experience of deep emotional pain where someone has hurt you. Well, if, you. if you react to what you feel, that person becomes the enemy and your life is dictated by your emotional responses to the pain. And all of a sudden, what you think and what you feel is dictating your reality. And if you're going to put on the belt of truth in that moment, you're going to change the way you think about what's happening. If you don't put on the belt of truth in that moment, then all of a sudden you have allowed yourself to be susceptible to the enemy's temptations because the enemy comes in, takes advantage of the situation, and begins to tempt you to respond to the impulses of your flesh because you've redefined reality according to what you feel, what you want, what you think. So if you're going to put on the belt of truth, you're going to say, no, reality is defined by who God is and what God says. And here's what God says. Number one, my battle is not against that person. And although that person has hurt me, they are not my enemy. The enemy is behind the scenes trying to take the pain in my life and point my finger at that person as the person I should attack. But in reality... The enemy is wanting to take the pain and use it for evil. But reality is that God wants to take the pain and cause me to trust him more, change the pain to something he redeems so that I can then turn to the offender and love them and point them to Christ. See, God says that he will take the things that happen in our lives that are wrong and bad and terrible and he will change them for something good. He will take the pain, he'll never waste it and he'll convert it, he'll redeem it so that it brings about the product of faith, hope, 
perseverance. That's what he does with trials. He brings forth character and hope and love, and it shows forth to others in forgiveness. But that won't happen unless I put on the belt of truth and change my definition of reality to match what God says. Another way to think about it is, um, I, I, I think the tendency for all of us at times is to think that we work hard for what we have, and because we work hard for what we have, it's ours. It belongs to us. Because we feel like it's, it's mine, and I worked hard for it. So if we take off the belt of truth, you know what we're going to end up doing? We're going to end up succumbing to the temptations of the enemy to act like we are the owners of all that we have, and we can do whatever we want with what we have because it's ours. But if we put on the belt of truth, we reorient ourselves to God's definition of reality. And what God says in his word is that he owns everything. And that everything we have, he has given us so that we might be stewards for him, for his glory. So if I orient myself to the reality that God has defined, then I begin to live differently with the things that I have. And I'm no longer susceptible to the temptations of the enemy. Because when he throws a temptation out there, for me, it's not deceiving to me because my reality is defined by what God says. See, what the enemy wants to do is throw a picture out there that's deceptive, that is only deceptive if I have denied the reality that God's defined. If I accept the belt of truth and God's defining the reality, then the deception is seen as just that, a deception. It's, it's easily said, I don't want that. God's defining my reality, the belt of truth. Now, see, the, the enemy wants to come into our lives and he wants to do things with us that cause us to take off that belt of truth. So he, he propagates this idea that you don't have to be accountable. There, there is no standard that you have to live by. Nobody has any right to, to get into your personal life and your private life and, and question what you do. My private life is my own, and what I do or what I believe in my private life, you have no business being a part of. I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of people in the church that actually act like you have no right to find out about what I do at work or what I do at home. It's my private life. If I want to do that, that's my business. That's wrong. God is the standard. He defined reality, and reality is that none of us have a right to a private life. We are living in the light as followers of Christ. And we should have everything exposed to the light of God for the sake of the gospel. The enemy wants to take us down. But if we'll put on the belt of truth, he doesn't have a choice but to flee. The next is the breastplate of righteousness. And this righteousness is not the righteousness that God has, a, has given us in Christ. Okay, you, you, if you read about these these pieces of the armor, these are things you've got to put on. Well, none of us can put on righteousness um, that is from Christ. Christ gives that to us. So everyone who puts their faith in Christ receives righteousness from him as a gift so that you are right before God. So what is it you're supposed to put on? You're supposed to put on daily righteousness that is a reflection or an outflow of the righteousness that you've been given. So you're supposed to be striving every single day to live in the righteousness or to live out the righteousness that Christ has given you. Another word for that is sanctification. You're just putting yourself in a position every day for God 
to bring forth out of your life the righteousness that's yours in Christ. You're just wanting to increase an experience of daily living in righteousness. That's putting on the breastplate of righteousness, increasing righteousness every single day in your life. If you're going to put on the breastplate of righteousness every single day, it first requires that you put on the belt of truth. You've got to accept that reality defined by God is this, that sin will kill you. That sin left unchecked in your life will absolutely deal to you a death blow. That sin left unchecked in your life will ruin your marriage, it'll ruin your house, it'll ruin your kids, it'll ruin your job, it'll ruin your future. It'll cause you to be totally ineffective in the things that God rescued you from to be effective in. He rescued you so that you can be effective and sin will deal a death blow to you and render you completely stagnant. you got to accept that as reality defined by God. So that then every day you wake up saying, Jesus Christ has given me his righteousness and today by his strength and his victory, I'm going to strive forward towards sanctification. I want to do everything I can today to make sure that I'm living in righteousness, that I'm moving forward in righteousness. I want to make sure that I am adhering to and longing for and striving to be righteous. It's putting on the breastplate of righteousness. It's absolutely critical because sin will kill you. It's important that you surround yourself with other people who are putting on the same breastplate. Because we're living in a world where Satan is dumbing down the importance of any level of righteousness in the church. We got people who are saying things like, you know, I know I messed up, but I prayed and God forgave me and everything's going to be okay. And they just, they developed this attitude and this mentality that I've prayed to receive Christ and he made me righteous and so now I'm good. And it doesn't really matter how unrighteous my life continues to be. That is a lie of the enemy. The unrighteousness that you live in dramatically affects the church. It dramatically affects spiritual warfare. And you must be adamant about putting on the breastplate of righteousness and pursuing righteousness with everything you are because God made you righteous. The enemy wants us to believe that if we're simply not as bad as the next person, That we're good enough. He wants us to take off the belt of truth that says that God defines what is righteous. And he wants us to instead look at this guy over here who is involved in all this junk and say, he's really bad. I'm better than him. I got a good enough breastplate on. I'm doing pretty good compared to that guy. And the next thing you know, you are caught in spiritual arrogance that is so repulsive to the world that nobody wants to hear your gospel. But if you will orient your life to the reality that God defines righteousness, 
then your striving in righteousness will always be with the humility of knowing that the only reason you are righteous is because Jesus Christ died for you. And that's a gospel that everybody needs to hear. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness matters. And every day you've got to strive to put that on by faith because of what Jesus has done. Striving in righteousness. If you share God's concern for righteousness, the enemy's going to have a hard time deceiving you. He's going to have a hard time coming against you. All right, the last piece we're going to talk about tonight is feet that are shod with the readiness or the preparation of the gospel of peace. I don't make the mistake to think that this piece of the armor, this this uh, um, living out of faith is the gospel of peace. That's not what is on your feet. What's on your feet is readiness or preparation. This piece of armor, this exhibition of faith, is being ready and prepared to share the gospel anytime, any place, no matter what. That's the heartbeat behind this, that you want to share the gospel of peace with everyone and anyone at any time and all the time. You are ready and prepared to share the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is the message that God sent his son to die in our place so that through faith we would be forgiven of our sins and we'd be moved from the place of being enemies with God to being friends with God so that we now are at peace with God because he's not accounted our sin against us but has instead given us the righteousness of Christ. He has called us Uh, He has called us his own children. And now we are co-heirs with Jesus. And the peace that the Son has with the Father is the peace that I now have with God. That is the gospel of peace. And this piece of armor is saying, I am always going to be ready to share this message. Anywhere, all the time. I love that right here in the middle of a passage about warfare is a message about peace. You know what that means for you and me? Listen to this. Do not miss this. The aim of all spiritual warfare is not defeating Satan. He's already defeated. The aim of spiritual warfare is not defeating Satan so that my life is easier, my life is more comfortable, my life is more victorious, my life is more blessed, my life is happier. That is not the aim of spiritual warfare. The aim of spiritual warfare is to resist the enemy so that he flees from me and I have complete power and freedom to declare the gospel of peace so that people can come to know Jesus Christ and be brought into friendship with God. That is the aim of spiritual warfare. And for some of us, that's going to mean that our lives will absolutely be full of suffering. And we will not be failing in spiritual warfare if our life is full of suffering because oftentimes suffering creates a platform for proclaiming the gospel. The aim of spiritual warfare is not to minimize my suffering, but to maximize the proclamation of the gospel. And sometimes that will entail deep suffering. 
We need to be a people who are ready to share the gospel. Prepared. No matter what. When I, when I was in China, I was just staggered by the scenery. The scenery was phenomenal. And I kept thinking to myself, I'm living here in this godless nation. And they have one of the most amazing testimonies in creation of the creator. It's one of the most beautiful places in all the earth. And I asked one of the guys there, I said, why don't these people look around and see this majestic creation and ask the question, who made this? And he said to me, I really think that because they've lived here their whole lives, it's just mundane. And a lot of their lives are so hard that they just miss the majesty. But there I was, seeing it for the first time. And it left me awestruck. And I just want to encourage you tonight. Don't let the mundane of life or the difficulty of life cause the glory of the gospel to be lost in the background. Just just take a fresh look at the gospel. Just take a fresh look at what Jesus did for you and let it strike your heart again so that you're ready to share the gospel no matter what. You know, when a Roman citizen decided to join the Roman army, he would take an oath of allegiance to his general. They called it the sacramentum. When he took this oath of allegiance to the general, it changed his status. He was no longer under the law of the land as a citizen. He was now strictly under the command of the general. So if the, command, so if the general commanded him to do anything, to kill somebody, whoever it was, he would not be liable under the civilian law for his act. He was only liable for obeying the general. And nothing would alleviate the oath of his allegiance. And nobody would ever become a soldier in the Roman army without giving this sacramentum. It's completely unthinkable. Now, I got to believe, if the Romans could make that kind of surrender to their general when they were just fighting against flesh and blood for land and power, that we, who are in a much more significant battle, under the victorious commander of all, could surrender ourselves completely for the battle for flesh and blood. To win people 
to Christ. I want to ask you tonight, will you surrender fresh to the Lord? Will you just just ask the Lord if there's anything in my life that's, that's not lining up with what you say? I want you to define my reality. If, if you've just not been concerned about personal righteousness, would you just surrender to the commander? He wants you to take up the breastplate of righteousness every day. If you've not been completely captured by the message of the gospel so that you're ready to share it anywhere, all the time, would you just surrender to the general, the king of kings, the lord of lords, Because I'm telling you, the only certain way to be effective in spiritual warfare is through faith in Jesus Christ.